Well, God bless you, and welcome to uh, NETS course number two, Disciples of the Lord Jesus. This is session 11. Tonight we're going to be looking at interpreting types and shadows. But I'd like to begin tonight by bringing a message uh, from God of edification, exhortation, or comfort by speaking in tongues and interpretation. No, truly, my children, that the greatness of what I am is still ahead for you. For the greatness of what I have for you, I have only begun to reveal to you. But continue to seek my face and continue to seek my heart. For I truly have my hand upon you and I am growing you up. For as you have turned to me, I have reached out to you. And I am bringing you from that place where you have come and humbled yourself into a place of greater grace and greater glory. Thank you, Lord. You know, in uh, 1 Corinthians 14, uh, verses 3 and 5, it says that those that prophesy and those that speak in tongues and interpret always bring uh, a word of edification, exhortation, and comfort to the church from the Lord. So we're really grateful for that. And it's just a, a great blessing that we have from the Spirit on this side of the day of Pentecost. And we thank God for that. Well, picking up where we left off last time, uh, I'd like to look at Psalm 1715. We were talking about the brazen laver and how it was made out of the mirrors and how when we, we looked into that to see what the Lord was doing in our lives. So to wash ourselves by the washing of the water of the word, we also saw reflection. And here the psalmist wrote, As for me, I will see your face in righteousness, and I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. See, our goal is to become more like Christ. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. We're looking at the reflection now, but there's a time coming when we're going to look full in His face. Now, we've talked about approval and being proved of God. I'd like you to look in Exodus chapter 16, verses 4 and 5. Then said the Lord unto Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain rate every day, that I may prove them whether they will walk in my law or no. And it shall come to pass that on the sixth day they shall prepare that which they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. And the Lord said He was doing this to prove them. Now obviously He was feeding them also. But the reason he did it this way was to prove them. And that's the Hebrew word, nakah, which means to approve. It's also translated to test or attempt at times. The difference between a test and a temptation is that a test is an endeavor to advance or to promote. A temptation is an attempt to cause to fall. In James chapter 1, verse 13, it says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He Himself tempt anyone. Now, this is the corresponding Greek word to the Hebrew word we just read, perazo. 
It means to tempt or to scrutinize, to assay, as in when you're weighing out uh, the weight of gold or silver, something worthwhile, something worthy or precious. It needs to be assayed so you can know what percentage of it is the metal that you're looking for. In other words, in light of silver tried in a furnace time and time again, it needs to be tested. It needs to be assayed. It needs to be examined or proved. That's what this word means. Now, it says that God cannot be tempted with evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Now, obviously, that's a proper translation in that he does not tempt us, meaning he does not do things to cause us to fail. However, he does test us in the same sense with the same Greek word. He does test us, but he does not tempt us with evil. He does not try to cause us to fail. He tries to cause us to increase he tries to cause us to be approved so he can give us more authority. Now, in Genesis chapter 22, we're going to look at this record, and we're looking at types and shadows in light of figures of speech and how if we can understand a type, then we can understand the antitype. If we see the type, we can look at the shadow. We can see clearly what God is accomplishing now if we see what he already prophesied that's been written down in Scripture. Now, in this section, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 22, it says, Now it came to pass after these things that God tested, which is that Hebrew word, nakah. He tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham? And he said, Here am I. So he was testing him. He was giving him a test. He was not tempting him with evil. But he was proving him to try his heart, just like he tried the hearts of the children of Israel to see if they were in a position to be given the authority at that time to take the promised land. We have to be proven before we can be given the promises. Well, in verse 2, God said to him, Now take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. So Abraham arose early, in the morning, and saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering, and arose, and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son and took the fire in his hand and a knife. And the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Now, some of the type I want you to see in this. God is asking Abraham to give up his only son. You need to understand, this is the son of promise. This is his firstborn by Sarah. This is the son of promise. All the inheritance that was to come down to all those that were prophesied through Abraham, as the sand of the seashore, as the stars of the sky, that promise to Abraham was through his son Isaac. If you'll recall, he even asked God, couldn't you please do it through my other son? And God said, no, I'm going to do it through Isaac. And he said that before Isaac was even conceived. So here now, Isaac's a young man. 
And God is requiring of Abraham that he give up the exact thing that God promised him. And I believe God does this for many of us in our ministries. He gives us a ministry which he has promised us, and then he'll test us to see if we've made the ministry our God. And he'll test us to see if we're willing to give up that which he has promised us. I've been tested like that. I've been asked to give up that which I thought was the exact thing that he had promised. But finding out after having given it up by obedience, God had greater plans on how he was going to bring to pass his ministry, which he had promised. So each of us needs to be watching for this. If the Lord asks, we need to give. Doesn't mean it won't take faith. Obviously, there's time involved. In this situation, Abraham went for three days. Now, this is a representation of the three days and three nights that Jesus was going to be in the earth. You know, there's no place in the Bible that it says that Jesus would die and be in the ground for three days and three nights. Jesus is the only one in Scripture that said this, and he said it about himself. And he said, the sign that will be given unto you is the sign of Jonah. Even as Jonah was in the belly of that fish for three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the belly of the earth. But he had to get that from the types and the shadows, just like he got that. And he spoke of the type of Jonah being in that fish for three days and three nights. But you see it in the type here also. Whereas in Abraham's heart, he already considered Isaac as having been sacrificed. In his heart, he was already convinced that he would fulfill what God had asked. So they went for three days, and then they went. And when he saw the mountain, God showed it to him, and he went there. He left the men and the donkey behind. They took the, the fire, meaning that they didn't have matches in those days. So he had brought some of the fire from the altar that they'd kept going, and they keep a coal wrapped up so they could carry it. They had the wood, and he had Isaac carry that. It was a type of the cross. The Hebrew word for wood and the Hebrew word for cross are the same word because in the Hebrew uh, the word which is translated for wood is also translated for things made out of wood. So when Isaac carried the wood, it was a symbol of Jesus carrying his cross, which we know were our sins and iniquities and sicknesses. Isaac was concerned because he saw all the makings for the sacrifice with the exception of the sacrifice itself. And he brought this up to his father and his father said, the Lord will provide and Isaac, being very obedient, followed his father. Now, you've got to understand, his father was approaching 120 years old at this time. Isaac was a young man, about 17. He could have easily outrun his dad <laughs> if he chose to. When he got up on the mountain and it came time for him to be bound and put on the altar, he could have easily stayed out of arm's reach of his dad. But he was obedient even to death. It was interesting what they carried with them, the wood, the fire, and the knife. And I believe this is representation of the baptisms. The first one is the baptism of Jesus, who was crucified on the cross. And when we're baptized in water, it represents his death, burial, and resurrection. That's the wood. The fire is the baptism of fire, representation of that. That fire had to come from God. And then the knife is a representation of the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So the baptism of the Spirit. And Jesus, even as He was going to the Garden of Gethsemane, shortly before He was to be offered up, 
in Luke 22, 36, he told his disciples that they should sell some of their personal possessions in order to buy swords if they didn't have any. Representation, it was a physical thing, but it was representative of the importance of the Word of God in where they were going. Now, obviously, Peter had a sword, which he used, and he abused that. And Jesus had to, once again, step in place. Jesus never told him to use that sword, which he did ask if he had. But it's a representation of the sword of the Spirit, which if we're going into trials, it's the sword of the Spirit. It's the Word of God that's going to help us get through. And certainly the baptism of the Spirit is going to energize our spirit and help us get through. And we see these three baptisms represented in these three items which they carried, the wood, the fire, and the knife. Well, verse 9, And then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place, The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, In the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. It was at this point in time that the promise was even increased. And the angel said, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gates of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice." It's the obedience that brought the blessing. It's obedience that brought the authority. What's interesting is the Mount Moriah was the exact place where later was called Calvary. And when Abraham looked up and saw that mount, he didn't know it, but he was taking his son to a place where God one day was going to watch his only son also be sacrificed on a cross. And all nations would be blessed through him. One time I was contemplating on this record, and I just put myself in Abraham's position. And I began to think as Abraham would have thought, and look at this requirement that God was giving him to take his only son. And you notice, he knew that God's promises were yes and amen. He knew that God would provide. And he knew that the promise would come through this son. And yet he knew the Lord had asked him to offer him up. So. In my mind, I was thinking like Abraham thought, and I said, well, Lord, obviously you're not going to break your covenant to not bring these promises to pass. So you're going to bring the promises to pass through this son who is going to be sacrificed. There's only one thing that can mean, and that is that after he's sacrificed, you're going to raise him from the dead. And you see that when Abraham spoke to the two young men that he left back with a donkey, he says, we're going to go and worship the Lord and we shall return. He fully intended to return with his son. 
but he also fully intended to sacrifice him. So there's only one thing he could have been thinking, and that is that God was going to raise him from the dead. There's nothing that we can put on God's altar if he's asked for it, that he cannot raise up and give back to us in a greater fashion. Now, obedience is better than sacrifice. But in this situation, he was blessed because he obeyed. The sacrifice was asked of God. And that's exactly what it says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. But by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, pirazo, God cannot be tempted with evil, neither does he tempt any man with evil. But yet he tested Abraham. He was tested and he offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, and Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. So in a figurative sense, we see Isaac was dead. In Abraham's mind, he was already dead and sacrificed from the moment God asked it. And it was three days and three nights that they were on their way till they got to that place on Moriah, when it was fully accomplished. And that's why Abraham was a man of faith. He never withheld whatever God asked from him. So you see, in a figure is a type. So in a figure, we saw with Abraham and Isaac, the type was cast of God the Father offering his son as a sacrifice on that same mountain. And the types and the shadows explain to us what are accomplished. In 2 Corinthians 13, 5, it says, examine, which is pirazo again. Examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Prove, dokimazo, we've looked at this before. We should test ourselves to prove our own selves. This is what the Lord is saying to us. Don't put yourself in temptation's way. We pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation, but to test ourselves to be approved, to be proved, to be strengthened so we may be increased. Now let's continue because we're looking at types. You see, the promise came to Abraham that the seed was going to come from a barren woman. Sarah was barren. Her name was Princess. Now later, there was a grandson called Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, which means prince among men. So as a symbol, Sarah was representation of Israel, and that Israel was barren at the time of Jesus' birth. At the time of his sacrifice, Israel was barren. And so what we see then, shortly after Abraham came down from the sacrifice, which was the type of Jesus' crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection. In chapter 23 of Genesis, verse 1, it says, And Sarah lived 127 years, and these were the years of the life of Sarah. So Sarah died in Hebron. Well, in Luke chapter 13, beginning of verse 6, it's a parable that Jesus spoke about the fig tree. And it says, A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. 
Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well. But if not, after that you can cut it down. Now the fig tree represents Israel. That was their national tree. And Jesus was giving this parable to point out in his ministry, he was going to give Israel the opportunity to bear fruit. And he was going to dig down and he was going to fertilize Israel and see if she would bear fruit. And if she wouldn't, then that tree would be cut off. And also, as a, a fulfillment of this, in Matthew Chapter 21, verse 18, it says, And now in the morning, as he returned to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves, and said to it, Let no fruit grow on you ever again. And immediately the fig tree withered away. And this was at the end of Jesus' ministry. When he came, Israel had not borne fruit, and so therefore he cursed the tree. And this was a type of of the curse which was about to descend upon Israel because of their own choice. In Matthew 27, beginning in 24, And when Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. He could see that Jesus was innocent. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Death and life were in the power of the tongue. And they released Barabbas to them. And when they had scourged Jesus, they delivered him to be crucified. Barabbas means, Bar means the son of, as they would have called Jesus Bar Joseph, meaning the son of Joseph. That's what they thought. So Barabbas, Abba means father. Barabbas means son of the father. It's a symbol that we see that they asked for the man of the world. They asked for the son of the father of this world who was a murderer. And they received him rather than the son of God from heaven. And when they did this, they made the choice that they were going to take the son of the owner of the vineyard and they were going to kill him. And that's when the curse descended upon Israel and they were cut off. And we see that in the type in Genesis that after the son came down from the mountain with his father, that Sarah died. Now, it's very important that we understand the timing of this judgment, which is currently on the nation of Israel. In Romans chapter 11, the Apostle Paul discusses it quite at length. In verse 25, he says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. There's seven things that the Apostle Paul talks about that we should not be ignorant of, and this is one of the seven. Lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. You see, the mystery that has been kept hid is that we can be joint heirs with Christ. Anyone that would believe and stay faithful can be joint heirs with the firstborn. However, there is a time of the mystery. There is a season that this is for. And as we've already seen, this season is during the time that Daniel spoke of, in between the 69th and the 70th week of Daniel. There is a stopping of the clock 
that was ticking for Daniel's people. And this is the time of the mystery. This is the administration of the great mystery. And during this time, blindness has been put in part upon Israel, and it's going to last until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And Paul asked the question in verse 2, Has God not cast away His people from whom He foreknew? God has not cast away His people. In verse 7, What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Some individuals have believed. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And in verse 11, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. You see, there's a purpose even in our salvation in that we as the body of Christ are still endeavoring to reach Israel, the people of promise, whom God has a covenant with. In Revelation, in John's vision, he saw the new Jerusalem and the streets were paved with gold, but the gates were made of pearls. But see, pearls came from a shellfish, which were unclean to the Jewish mind, certainly representing Gentiles. And so we see in that vision that the foundation is of Israel, but the gate into that new Jerusalem is going to be through the Gentile church. The gates are open now, and part of our call is to make Israel jealous of the one true God. Verse 28, concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. You see, God does not forget his covenants. And even though they turned away from him and they brought this curse upon themselves and upon their children, God is still looking for the time when he can reestablish those covenant relationships with them. And that time is not far ahead. Now let's look at Genesis 24. Again, we're looking at types and shadows. We're looking at very important types from the Old Testament that help to explain the present administration that we're in and how it is unfolding and will unfold. And if we can understand types and shadows, we can understand the biblical doctrine which has been written down by the holy apostles and prophets in this New Testament. One thing about types and shadows, types are never used to set doctrine, but they are used to explain and expand true doctrine. Now in Genesis chapter 24, verse 1, it says, Now Abraham was old and well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house, who ruled over all that he had, Please put your hand under my thigh. He said to his servant, his steward. Now here you'll notice it does not give his name. Now, in Genesis 15, we know that his name is Eliezer. However, there's a reason that it's not used here. It's not that Moses, as he was writing this, forgot his name between chapter 15 and chapter 24. But this is a type of the Holy Spirit who does not come in his own name and does not come to speak of himself. So in this record, we're going to be looking at the type of the Father sending the Holy Spirit after the sacrifice of the son, the death of the barren woman, in order to find a bride for his son. 
This is occurring even now as we're in the time of the Gentiles. Well, uh, Abraham made his servant promise. He said in verse 4, But you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son Isaac. Well, the servant was concerned that the woman might not be willing. In verse 8, And Abraham instructed him that if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be released from this oath. Only do not take my son back there. You go and find the bribe. Again, Isaac's going to have to trust his father. And obviously, Abraham trusted his steward. This is a very important assignment. Well, in verse 10, Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, for all his master's goods were in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made his camels kneel down outside the city by a well of water at evening time, the time when the women go out to draw water. Now, as a symbol, this steward is over everything in his master's house. And today, the Holy Spirit is the one that distributes all the blessings that come from our Heavenly Father. I had a friend always told me that in the army, you always want to make friends with the quartermaster because he can make sure you get anything you need and get the best that's available. Well, in the kingdom of God, the Holy Spirit is the quartermaster. Everything is in his hands for distribution. And when we make him our friend, then he unloads those camels, which are full of his master's goods. Well, here he came to the well at just the right time. Verse 12, And then he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please give me success this day and show kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, here I stand by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now let it be that the young woman to whom I say, Please let down your pitcher that I may drink. And she says, Drink, and I will also give your camels a drink. Let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. This was a prayer he prayed. And it happened before he had finished speaking that behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her pitcher on her shoulder. Now the young woman was very beautiful to behold, a virgin. No man had known her. And she went down to the well, filled her pitcher, and came up. And the servant ran to meet her and said, Please let me drink a little water from your pitcher. So she said, Drink, my lord. And then she quickly let her pitcher down to her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. Then she quickly emptied her pitcher into the trough, ran back to the well to draw water, and drew for all his camels. Now we need to understand here, she did not have to be asked to do that. And she did it willingly, and she did it with effort. She ran to get water for his camels. Now, I don't know how much a camel can drink, but I can imagine it's probably a lot, especially after crossing the desert. 21, And the man wondering at her remained silent so as to know whether the Lord had made his journey prosperous or not. So it was when the camels had finished drinking that the man took a golden nose ring weighing half a shekel, two bracelets for a wrist weighing ten shekels of gold, and said, Whose daughter are you? And she explained that she was indeed of the family lineage that Abraham belonged to. 
So the servant knew that God had brought him all across the desert right exactly to someone of the household that Abraham had sent him to find the bride for Isaac. Well, he praised the Lord when he found this out. And he said, hey, do you think maybe I could stay with you? Is there room? And in verse 28, so the young woman ran and told her mother's household these things. Explained to them who this man was that she'd met, that he'd come from Abraham, and she ran to tell them. Again, showing that she was not doing this except she was excited to do it. She was pleased to serve. Verse 29, now Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban, and Laban ran out to the man by the well. So it came to pass when he saw the nose ring and the bracelets on his sister's wrist, and when he heard the words of his sister Rebekah saying, this man spoke to me, that I went to meet the man, and there he stood by the camels at the well. And he said, come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and the place for the camels." When I read that, I just had to think of Ephesians 2.22, where we're being built together into a habitation of God by the Spirit. The habitation, the house of God. My house will be a house of prayer for the nations. So the house has to be prepared. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 13.1 and 14.1, both, that we are to desire and pursue after the gifts of God. You see, they prepared a place for the camels. The camels represented, there were 10 of them. Ten is orderly perfection. However, this represents what we have in number one, the gift of the Holy Spirit that's in us. Remember, every one of us has received the gift and we may minister one to another. But then there's nine manifestations of that gift. The nine gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12. Those grace gifts. So together there's those ten. Those are the camels. And the house was prepared, but so was the place prepared for the camels. You see, the bride is going to be ready to receive not only the Spirit in order to build that house for God, but also to receive the gifts which come with that Spirit, to prepare the house, to bring the camels inside. Then the man came to the house, and he unloaded the camels and provided straw and feed for the camels and water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Food was set before him to eat, and he said, I will not eat until I have told you about my errand. And he said, Speak on. So he explained the covenant he had made with Abraham to come and to find a bride for Isaac from among Abraham's people. And that he wanted to bring her back. That he explained the prayer he prayed. And that Rebecca was the answer to that prayer. And she fulfilled everything that he asked for. So that he would know. And the Holy Spirit right now is looking through and among God's people. Trying to find those that will go the extra mile. Those that are willing to do more than they're asked. Because their heart is good before God. Verse 45, but before I had finished speaking in my heart, there was Rebecca coming out with her pitcher on her shoulder, and she went down to the well and drew water, and I said to her, please let me drink. Well, verse 49, now if you will deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me, and if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, the thing comes from the Lord. We cannot speak to you either bad or good. Here's Rebecca before you. Take her and go, and let her be your master's son's wife, as the Lord has spoken. And it came to pass, when Abraham's servant heard their word, that he worshipped the Lord, bowing himself to the earth. Then the servant brought out jewelry of silver, 
jewelry of gold and clothing and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave precious things to her brother and to her mother. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank and stayed all night. Then they arose in the morning and he said, Send me away to my master. But her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman stay with us a few days, at least ten. After that she may go. And he said to them, Do not hinder me, since the Lord has prospered my way, and send me away so that I may go to my master. And they said, We will call the young woman and ask her personally. They called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. You see, once the Holy Spirit finds those that are called, that are willing, and that are able, he will immediately begin to bring us to the Lord. That's his heart. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become the mother of thousands of ten thousands, and may your descendants possess the gates of those who hate them. Then Rebekah and her maids arose, and they rode on camels and followed the man. So the servant took Rebekah and departed. Now there's more in this type than is generally noticed, and I want to look at it. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. Now there are two different Greek words here translated as know and known. The first one, I know in part, is the word gnosko, which means to know by experience through effort to become acquainted with someone. I shall know just as I am known. Those two words are epigonosco, which means to become thoroughly acquainted with, to know thoroughly and accurately. This is the only verse in the Bible with both gnosco and epigonosco in the same verse. And it's showing us that there's a process of looking in this mirror and growing up to the point where we can see him face to face. And it's a growth, not only of maturity, but a growth of intimacy, of coming to know him closer and better. Isaiah 49, 15 and 16 says, Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands." What he was saying there in a figure was that our names are on the palms of his hands, a place where nobody gets tattoos because of the pain it would cause. And yet he was saying that because I want to be able to see you at all times, I put your name on the palms of my hands. That's so I will never forget you. I will never forget you. Matthew 25, beginning of verse 1, is another parable. This helps to explain the type. This is a parable that Jesus told concerning the kingdom of heaven, specifically about the wedding of the bride and the bridegroom. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened unto ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels and with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. At midnight, a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. 
But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came along, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Now, there's a number of things I want you to understand in this record. Generally speaking, this story is told in such a way that the five wise virgins are to be a type of the bride. But they cannot be a type of the bride because there's five of them. And there's only going to be one bride. They also cannot be the bride because they fell asleep on their wedding night. The bride does not fall asleep on her wedding night. They also were not in the position of the bride. The bride would be with the bridegroom at this time, but they were waiting by the side of the road, which is traditionally where the bride and the bridegroom would come on the carriage which would carry them. These were bridesmaids. And as we saw in the type, when Rebecca left, she left and her maids went with her. So we see that there are those that will be in the wedding feast that are not the bride. They are wise. Why are they wise? Because they have oil and they have extra oil. Now, the five foolish are generally spoken of as those who did believe because they had oil and then they let their lamps go out. In other words, they fell away, and so therefore they could not get into heaven. This is what is taught. However, this cannot be true, because that would contradict what we've seen in the Scriptures, that when we receive the Holy Spirit, it is eternal life. Now the five wise had eternal life, and they entered in to the wedding feast. Although they did not sit at the head table, they were not the bride, as Rebecca was the bride, chosen by the servant because of what she did. But yet they are bridesmaids that are going with the bride. But there's some things we need to look at. For one thing, Jesus said this about those virgins. Verse 3, Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. Now it was the foolish virgins themselves who said, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are going out. Or literally our lamps have gone out. But how many people in this world are convinced that they have the Spirit of God, but they don't? How many people of this, in this world are convinced that they're going to heaven, but they're not? Because they have not received Jesus. And so they are convinced that they've had lamps that were burning, and they need oil from you to keep them burning. But Jesus said they had no oil. See, the lamps were made out of clay, just like our bodies, representing the body either filled with spirit or not filled with spirit. Now, these five wise virgins had spirit, meaning they were saved, and they had extra, meaning they had manifest the spirit. But the five foolish only thought they were saved. It wasn't that they were saved and then the Lord disallowed them to enter into their eternal reward. But when it says here, I don't know you, in verse 12. That word is the word oida, which means to know subjectively. It's not the word to intimately know, but to know in the simplest sense. So Jesus was saying to them, I don't know you. I don't know who you are. Now it has been taught, one doctrine is that Jesus was saying to them, 
You know, when he said, I don't know you, it's because you're not familiar with me. So in other words, these were people that got saved, but they never really came to get to know Jesus really close in a relationship. That's not it at all. Because he says, I don't even oida you, which you would have to first oida a person before you could gnosko a person, before you could grow into epigonoscoing a person. He never even met them, is what he was saying at the door. They were convinced Jesus said they had no oil. And I think this is very important to understand as this parable is a type. And this parable must fit with the other types. As we're looking at here in Genesis, Rebecca came with the servant. It's a type of the bride coming with the Holy Spirit. But there are bridesmaids that are coming. They're wise because they've received the Lord. But unlike the bride, they fell asleep. They did not remain faithful. They were not overcomers. Remember, if we are faithful, we'll inherit the promises. John chapter 10, verse 27. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. I gnosko them. And they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. This is the father who said, can a woman forget her nursing child? I will never forget you. I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Can that God forget us? Absolutely not. Those five foolish were foolish because they did not receive the Lord in their lifetime. The five wise were wise enough to receive the Lord, but not striving enough to run to serve to be the bride. They fell asleep. So we see a type of what's happening today in the church. The Holy Spirit has come from a far country to prepare the bride, to find at the well, at the place where the water is, it's a symbol of coming to that brazen laver where we wash ourselves. It's that place of the water. When we come to that place, those that will run to serve, they will be part of the bride. Those that receive the servant but don't run to serve, don't put the effort in, they'll still be there. And what a great blessing it'll be to be there. But how much better to be one with Christ, to be a joint heir, to come into the fullness of the firstborn is to be married with him then you can share in all that he has. You see, the process of discipleship is the process of growing in intimate knowledge of the Lord and thereby becoming more like him. 2 Corinthians 11.2 says, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. This was foolish to me at one time, it was foolishness to them at that time because Paul even said to them, let me share something with you that seems like foolishness. But that's what he was doing with the church. He was preparing them as a chaste virgin to be ready to receive Christ as the bridegroom so that they wouldn't be just sitting on the side of the road sleeping when the trumpet woke them up. Matthew 10, 25, it is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. We want to become like him. If we're truly disciples, we're going to do more than just receive the eternal life. We're in the process of becoming like our master. We're becoming like our teacher. 
The process of knowing him, gnosko, to knowing him, epigonosko, is the process of growing from immaturity to maturity. Discipleship is the process of preparing ourselves as a glorious bride without spot or blemish. In Ephesians 4.13 we read, Till we all come into the unity of the faith and the knowledge, which is the epigonosco, the intimate knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I should say we're all still growing. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things to him who is the head, Christ. See the process of coming to know him, gnoscoing him, is to become familiar first with him, familiar with his ways, to become believers, but not to remain as simply a believer, but to love him, which is to keep his commandments. And as we keep his commandments, there's effort involved. But as we put forth the effort, we become more like him. And we are transformed. And remember, the renewing of our mind is the key to that transformation. As we put forth the effort to change our minds, adapt his ways, we are like Rebecca as a type of the bride. We are running to serve. Therefore, we receive all that is in the hand of the servant, all that is available to his master. 